Hi, I'm Michael. I'm a small business owner, investor, a work and prop process improv artist, a bit manic, and always looking for something new and interesting to entertain me. I am a TV host and your host right now for what we call the Second Scene Podcast. It's a Dweebs global production where you can go for free resume help, mental health assistance, and so much more. And there's no catch. We're completely confidential and we're completely free. It's free. So go to dweebsglobal.org. I am here today with Gary Arndt. He went from being a 90s internet entrepreneur to a world traveler and photographer. And when I say world traveler, he has been to over seven continents. He actually did that all in one year, I think 2012, all 50 states and every US territory twice. Um, he's just been everywhere over and over and over again. He's one of the longest running, if not the longest running travel blogs on the internet. So welcome Gary. Thanks for having me. Did that, uh, that give you a good description of you or did I miss something in there? You hit the big points. Okay. <laughs> so when did you, what were you doing in the nineties? You had, you had internet startups, I'm guessing you were an entrepreneur. <clears throat> I was at the right place at the right time. I had graduated college and a uh, guy I lived with in college. I was living with him after, and he had started a, to write a product. So the internet was really in its early stages. We're talking 9,600 baud modems. Netscape hadn't even been created yet. We were using the, the browser from uh, the University of Illinois. And uh, he had a brother who said, you know, you should make it easy to hook up a database to a website. Because back then there wasn't PHP, there wasn't WordPress, there wasn't Linux, there wasn't any of this stuff, right? right. And it was hard. You had to get like an Oracle server and uh, your Sun server with a copy of Oracle. And it was this really expensive proposition to even serve up a simple HTML web page. So uh, he wrote this product uh, called Cold Fusion. It's now owned by Adobe. Right. Uh, and he also said, well, you should make it run on this new operating system that's coming out called Windows, uh, uh, Windows NT, which was the new Microsoft server that you could run on just a normal computer. Right. And it dramatically lowered the cost of serving up uh, web pages and it allowed for the dynamic creation. And he had companies coming to him saying, well, we would like our company's website to be, to use your product. And he didn't actually want to build the websites. So he turned to me and he said, well, do you want to do it? So I was like, sure. So I started building these database driven websites, which at the time were kind of novel. Now everything does it. And I had more people that wanted it done. So I hired a friend who hired a friend and a couple of years later, I'm 28 years old and I got a company with 50 people. And uh, I ended up selling it to a big uh, international company that, you know, wanted to get into that business. And I did it before the dot-com bubble burst, thankfully. So uh, that was, that was kind of what I did. I was in the right place at the right time and uh, just made the best of it. And, you know, after, after that business, I started another one where I had a network of video game websites. And I remember we had to have an entire rack in a server room to host the website and the database and everything. And we thought we were doing really well because in that same server room, I think was shop NBC and they had like a wall of, of racks and everything today. You could just buy that for, you know, $50 a month or something for hosting. And it would be absolutely trivial. Um, so yeah, things are so much better today than they were then. Oh, right. Right. So you had the racks, a rack is essentially a, it's instead of a rack of clothing. It's a rack of computers. Like a closet. Yeah. Right. But filled with electronics. <laughs> right. 
it's very hot in those uh, in those server centers where they have tons of racks. It's uh, it's nice that we don't have to have them in our own in our own places anymore. I had an internet company back in the day, and uh, we had we had that as well. It was it was really neat. It was neat growing up at that time because everything was new. So it was it was almost like everything you created was something somebody else hadn't created yet. Yeah, and I, I'm assuming you're probably in the same generation I am, kind of a Gen Xer. Um, we're we're kind of overlooked, but you know I've done a lot of interviews where I point out well, like, well, we're the ones that actually made everything, and I think it's still kind of true if you look at the Elon Musk and the Larry Pages and and all those people. I'm like they're they're kind of all in the same generation. It's true. It's true. We were the first. <laughs> we laid the groundwork, and they built on top of it. So I'm, I'm proud of what I did back then. I had so much fun. That was such a blast for me, spending the nights in the office and, and just creating. All right, so you sold that business. And then what made you decide to travel the world just to? I had sold that business. Then the dot-com bubble hit. And it was really hard to raise money and to start a business. It was just not a good time. I think if you look at a lot of successful companies, you'll see a lot of them started before that happened or after that happened, but then there's this kind of chasm in the early 2000s where kind of nothing happened. So I was a, uh, when I went to college, I was one of the top uh, academic debaters in the country. And I spent a lot of time doing that. And I, I came close, I never won a national championship, but I came pretty close. And I always said, well, if I could go back to college, I would either blow off all my classes like a football player, just get D's and everything, and focus on debate and try to you know win a national title. Well, I couldn't go back and do that. Or I would go back and I would get a degree in, in physics. And I thought I could still do that. And so I, I went back to school and I spent uh, two and a half years studying and I, I just took science and math classes and uh, ended up doing actually focusing on geology and geophysics because I found that kind of to be the most interesting. And I was in my mid thirties at the time. And I kind of saw what a lot of the PhD students were going through. And I realized that, you know, getting a PhD at that point in your life is probably not the, the wisest career move. And it just hit me one day. It's like, I don't have kids. I don't have a wife. I don't really have anything going on. There's nothing stopping me from traveling. When I sold my, my, my business, the company I sold it to, I sort of conned them into sending me to their offices around the world to talk about app development. And so they sent me, I was in, uh, I was on a three-week whirlwind tour. They sent me to Tokyo, Taipei, Singapore, Frankfurt, Brussels, Paris, and London. First time I had ever really been anywhere, right? So I, I literally circumnavigated the globe and I really liked it. It was a real eye-opening experience. I always kind of wanted to do it again. I took a few trips out of the U.S. I went to Iceland and Argentina. And I just, in 2005, I came up with this idea of I'm going to sell my house and travel around the world. And it took me 18 months to tie up all the loose ends. I had to sell my home. And this was before, again, the, the, the housing market dropped out. So I sold it in 2007. It was still, it was a little soft, but not as bad as it got in 2008. And uh, March 2007, I turned over the keys to the house and, and set out to travel around the world. Wow. Power to you. Most, uh, I, I know a lot of people dream that, but actually doing it is a whole nother. Well, way. I thought I would travel for a year or two. And it just ended up being a decade. I just never stopped. And I just, I just kind of kept doing it because as it turns out, the world's really big. Uh, and, and if you've ever been to a restaurant, you've heard the expression, your eyes are bigger than your stomach. 
and you're like you order too much or you order something that that's too big. Mm-hmm. Uh, the same is true when you're travel planning. You know, you can look at all these books and it's like, oh, I want to go here. I want to go here. I want to go here. But when you actually do it, um, it, it it's time consuming and it's, you know, it, it, it's a lifetime endeavor. It's not something you can just do in a single year. There's and as I've traveled more and I've, I've been to a lot of places, um, there's more stuff I learn about that I want to I want to go visit. So if you remember that Donald Rumsfeld interview from like uh, the Iraq where he talks about unknown unknowns, things you don't even know you don't know. There are so many unknown unknowns I had when I started that I've now are known unknowns, these things that I now know about, but I haven't been there and, and whatnot, uh, that the list just keeps growing. So I'm sure what's what's been been the biggest change in your life, I guess, mentally uh, because of travel, because of what you've seen and done. When I was early in my travels, normally if you go on a trip, in the back of your mind is the realization that eventually you go home. The trip will end. Either it's a good trip or a bad trip, you'll be done. And it dawned on me, I think I was in Hawaii, and I had this realization, I'm not going home. I don't have a home to go to. This is it, what I'm doing today. And you know, this has been, it'll be 14 years this March uh, since I started. And I have slept in, you know, probably thousands of beds at this point in different rooms. And it teaches you to appreciate just where you are at that moment is, is where you are. And that's just kind of how you live your life. And, you know, I, I don't, I had a pretty big house before I started traveling. I will never do that again. Uh, when I eventually, I mean, I still travel a lot, not this year, but uh, a couple of years ago, I got an apartment just so I could go somewhere between trips. And I still travel half the year to, you know, a third of the year around there. A, a very small. I, I really see no need to, to have anything like that again. Uh, so it's definitely, you know, and it's given me a greater appreciation of, of culture, not just, oh, they have this food and they wear this clothes, but really in terms of how people think and uh, the importance of it. And it really, you know, it's a much deeper thing, I think, even than most people realize. Right. It's a connection with people that uh, it's hard to make sometimes because of the cultural differences and uh, the different ways people think. Uh, I guess that has probably gotten easier for you over time just because you've understood it better. Have you, have you felt like that? Uh, when I, I'm, the first place I visited that was a foreign country was Tahiti. And they spoke French. In the big scheme of things, not the most challenging place to visit, but I'm by myself and I don't speak French. So it, it, it kind of terrified me at first. Now you could drop me in Turkmenistan. No problem. I don't speak Turkmen. Um, but it's just, uh, I, I'm, I, I get it now. I have the experience. I have the confidence and those things don't phase me anymore. So I have no problem really going anywhere and not worrying about the language or anything else. Cause I know I can get by. Got you. How far in advance do you plan where you're going on your next, uh, your next trip? Is it? Well, when I first started, I went West. That, that, that's as planned as it was. <laughs> that was go west. <laughs> it ended up taking me six months to cross the Pacific ocean. Uh, cause I just went Island hopping. I went to all these little countries that, you know, no one ever visits as my website became more popular because I was visiting a lot of oddball places. 
uh, I eventually started working with people in the travel and tourism industry. I'd work with tourism boards, travel companies, and opportunities would arise. Uh, would you like to visit this place and write about it? And so a lot of what I do now is, is based on whatever opportunities come up. Uh, and sometimes an opportunity will come up and then I'll go do something myself. So I had to go to a meeting last February in Portugal because uh, I'm on the board of directors of a, a big travel writer organization. And afterwards, I just spent 10 days on my own, rented a car, drove around Portugal uh, because I was there already. And I'll do things like that where I'll do speaking things at a conference. So I, an example, a couple of years ago, I spoke at an event in Manila and they said, well, where are you flying in from? And I said, Minneapolis, where are you flying out to? I said, Fiji, because <laughs> they were flying me in and out. <laughs> Why not? And then from Fiji, <laughs> I went to uh, Tuvalu, which is the only country in the Pacific I hadn't been to, went back to Fiji. Then I went to American Samoa. Now, why did I go to American Samoa? One, I was trying to visit every national park in the United States. I need to go to Na American Samoa National Park. But two, I was speaking at another event in San Diego. And I asked where they would fly me from. They said, well, any domestic flight. Well, it turns out American Samoa counts as a domestic flight. <laughs> so I got a flight from American Samoa to San Diego. And then they flew me back to Minneapolis. <laughs> found the loophole <laughs> so i'll do that kind of stuff all the time uh with speaking engagements and things like that uh to visit things i haven't visited before and you may have just given a whole bunch of business travelers some uh ideas that aren't gonna aren't gonna please their bosses <laughs> oh i did that back in the 90s when i had my own company i would fly out somewhere and then you'd usually get a cheaper ticket if you did a saturday stayover so i would gladly volunteer and then i would go visit national parks or historic sites or whatever uh on my day off and then fly back so yeah i even did that with regular business trips nice um how are you handling covid right now not traveling because oh it sucked ass um 95 of my income just dried up i i confess this was a blind spot uh I didn't think that the global travel and tourism industry would disappear. Like the, it'd be gone like the rapture. How could I didn't you see not, that coming. Did not expect that? I mean, I'm, I mean I'm kidding. People, people don't realize this is one of the biggest industries in the world, right? It, it was on a par with like agriculture and energy. I mean, that's how big it was. And it never dawned on me that it would just disappear. So I, what I ended up doing is I've, I've launched, I started a new podcast in July. That's not exactly a travel show, uh, but it's a daily scripted history podcast. And that's been taking up all my time and it's, it's, it's actually growing and, and doing really well. Uh, so I'm kind of keeping busy doing that right now. But when travel comes back, I now have a amazing platform uh, to start selling tours and stuff. Because, you know, I deal with history and everything. I just have some great ideas for what I want to do now for in, you know, a lot of the tours, you normally, it's like, okay, we're going to Italy, we fly into Rome, and then we go to Venice, Florence, blah, 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 and you just visit all these places mm -hmm. uh, for just maybe even staying in Rome for a week and just going to all the places nobody knows about, because there are so many of them that, because uh, everyone just goes to the Colosseum and the Vatican. Right, but you can actually visit Nero's Palace, which they only discovered in the late 40s, that because it was buried and all the original artwork, the paintings, 2,000 year old stuff, still there, and no one knows about it. And there's stuff like this all over Rome and in the surrounding areas 
that I think would just make for a really cool tour. And I think planning other ones for like Istanbul and these other places where you can really go in depth in one spot. But that sounds great. I, I, so many people travel and don't want to just do like the main touristy attractions. And it's, it's sometimes hard to find, hard to find the other, the other gems. What's, what's the name of your podcast and your website? Uh, uh, Everything Everywhere is the name of the pod. Everything Everywhere Daily is the show. Uh, that's also the name of the travel website that I've had for forever. I just used the, the same branding for it. Uh, thankfully, when I, when I picked the name for it, I picked the literally most generic name in the world. So I could kind of bend it to whatever I wanted. <laughs> that, that is, that works. <laughs> What's the most dangerous situation you found yourself in unexpectedly? Uh, 2010, I was in Bangkok and there was these very big protests going on, uh, hundreds of thousands of people. And one day they were going to dump some, they were going to do a protest at the prime minister's house, which was a few blocks from where I was staying. And what they were going to do is dump human blood on his front gate. So they had taken blood samples from thousands of people and they had literally filled up plastic jugs filled with human blood. So I was like, okay, I got to see this. And so I took my camera and I spent, there was all these police with riot gear lined up the street before the prime minister's house and thousands of protesters. And I was between them and I was just a white guy with a fancy camera and uh, it was exhilarating. There was a lot of traditional media there and they all had helmets and armbands and body armor. And I just had an umbrella because uh, <laughs> it might rain. And, uh, but I got some amazing photos and, uh, that was, that was really fun. And there was another time in Cambodia. Um, I went to this really remote temple. It took hours to drive there, hours to drive back on the back of a motorbike. And we were coming back to Siem Reap and it was after dark and this car stopped. And the guy who was my guide and the driver, his dad was a cop and he had given him his revolver for the day. And he had it under the seat. You know how a seat flips up on a, a motorcycle. And as he's talking to these guys in Khmer, I have no idea what they're saying. He lifts the seat. And he puts his hand there where the gun was. And they're talking, they're talking, they're talking. And then the car leaves. He puts the seat back down. He just tells me, okay, we got to go. <laughs> and I, I, I still to this day do not know what happened. <clears throat> but uh, we then left quickly. <laughs> you didn't ask and I'd be dying to know <laughs> why my life was just in danger. What you? I read that you uh, landed and were launched from a nuclear aircraft carrier. I'm guessing this is from a, a jet. I can't imagine that experience or how scary that's got to be. Was it was it not on a jet, actually. Oh. Uh, so I was invited by the U.S. Navy to uh, come and visit the USS Harry S. Truman. Uh, they were doing training and maneuvers off the coast of Virginia. So uh, we went to Norfolk, and they have these small cargo planes that are designed for aircraft carriers. I believe it's called an uh, a C2 Greyhound, uh, but they're rather small and the wings fold up. So they're designed for landing and taking off on carriers. So we landed, we did the tail hook landing, stayed on the ship overnight, uh, got to photograph. We got to spend some time in the deck while they were doing takeoffs and landings of fighter jets, uh, which is a really dangerous place to be. Uh, it, it is incredible because it, it is like this deadly ballet where you have hundred million dollar jets bombs, fuel, and everyone has a colored shirt and everyone knows what they're doing and it all works. 
and you're just, you know, they say, stay here, do, do not move. And I don't, um, took pictures of it. And the next day we got launched on the same plane. Um, and I assure, I assure you, you will never have a experience more acceleration in your life. You're actually sitting backwards in the plane. And normally when you're in a car that's accelerating, you're sitting forward. And so you go backwards, but with this, you're going to fly forward and you're in a four point harness. You have goggles, you have a helmet, uh, uh, you have an ear covering for sound and they, you have to put your hands in your harness like this, because otherwise they're going to fly forward when you take off and you have to put your legs your knees up on the seat and you know, it's coming and you know, it's coming like a bandaid getting ripped off. And then when it happens, uh, I almost passed out. It was that much acceleration. And the guy sitting next to me, right next to me, was the head coach of the Navy football team, who was also invited. And we're in the air so we could take off all of our, our sound uh, stuff and our, our goggles. And I just turned to him and I said, man, I almost passed out. And he just goes to me, I did. <laughs> and this, he was a pretty big guy. Uh, but that was, yeah, that was an amazing uh, experience. Oh, well, a lot of the, that all sounds like it sounds incredible to me, but I would be so sick. Uh, it, one of the biggest nightmares of mine you did, which was spelunking. <laughs> that is where you essentially are cave diving or cave exploring, but they're really thin, right? Like you can barely fit your body in. Uh, there were, there were parts. So it was in Mulu National Park in Malaysia, which if you're ever on the island of Borneo, highly, highly, highly recommend. They have some caves there that are, are just, I, I think they found one in Vietnam, which is larger, but at the time Deer Cave was the largest ca single cavern in the world. Like you could put multiple stadiums inside of it. And there's several million bats that live in this cave. And every night they go out to feed in the rainforest and they have a, a bat viewing area where you can see this river of black coming out of the the, the, the cave. Uh, but they also, because it's a limestone karst area, they have a lot of different caves. And uh, one of the days we went out and you had the helmet with the light on it and everything else. And yeah, we, we went caving and uh, there were parts of the cave where you kind of had to get on your belly and uh, crawl through and other parts you had to climb up on a rope and it was completely dark, you know, the entire time. There's absolutely no light in the cave. I could not handle that. You don't have any, you don't have a claustrophobic bone in your body, huh? No, I, it didn't bother me. I mean, other people had done it before, so I figured <laughs> nothing was going to go wrong. I think they want is a dead tourist on their hands. <laughs> that is true. That is true. What's the, uh, what's one of the biggest challenges that you find in traveling? One of the biggest challenges you have while traveling? To be completely honest, traveling has become so much easier with smartphones. I began my travels in the period of time between when Steve Jobs announced the iPhone to when it went on sale. So when it actually was released, I was running around the Pacific. And uh, after a couple months, I wound up in Honolulu again. And I, I had to go to an Apple store to check this out because part of me didn't believe it, like that this was an actual thing. And I was like, um, wow. And so I, I kept traveling. And then later that year, I was in Tokyo. And I went to the Apple store in the Ginza district and I bought, uh, I don't even think they make them anymore, an iPod touch, which is basically an iPhone that didn't, well, that wasn't a phone. And that was just the greatest thing since sliced bread for me because it, I could record audio. I could you know, do all this stuff that required other things before. And since then, it's just gotten easier and easier. Um, I used to have to go to internet cafes all the time. 
and those aren't even a thing anymore. Uh, you used to have to get a SIM card if you went to a new country. Now I got the T-Mobile plan in the U.S. I can just travel internationally, you know, not even need to do that. So, man, finding what, what's difficult about traveling now, it's gotten so much easier. You know, you can use the Google Translate app to talk to people in languages that you don't understand. That was never possible. A couple of years ago, I was in the Balkans. I flew into Skopje in Macedonia. I rented a car. No plans. No anything. I just pulled up Google Maps and said, plot me a route to Kosovo. Boom. Drove. No problem. Maps were fine. Everything worked. Uh, so, man, it's not hard anymore. It's so easy. So if anyone has an excuse for not traveling, it is not legitimate. It is so easy to do now. Uh, fear of foreign languages or anything like that, not an issue. What's, what's the one piece of advice you can give people that just want to get out there and travel for a couple months? <clears throat> the one thing I always say is that your ability to, to adapt is more important than your ability to plan. And you know, you're, if, if you're going on this trip and it's a you know, once-in-a-lifetime trip, you're going to have a tendency to over-plan. You're going to get the guidebooks and, okay, day one, we're going to do this. And at 12 p.m., we're going to go here to go to this cathedral and we're going to do this. And I assure you, day one, all your plans are going to go out the window for whatever reason. Your flight's going to be delayed or there's going to be rain or something. Stuff happens. Um, to, to leave room in your schedule for serendipity, for changes in, in plans, whatever might happen, uh, I think you'll have a much better experience than if you just try to follow a schedule and rush your way through it. That makes sense. Where would be a good place? You know, I've visited Europe. I visited um, a lot of places that have similar cultures to us. Where would be that? Where would be a good, um, good leaping off point if I wanted to visit somewhere that had a very different culture than what we have here, but wasn't incredibly difficult to travel to or, or to navigate? The place that's really opening up right now is Central Asia, and these are the former Soviet republics uh, with the word "stan." Uh, so you're talking Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, Tajikistan, and Uzbekistan. Just a few years ago, it was very difficult to visit these countries because they all had onerous visa processes and uh, it was expensive to get the visa. In fact, when I went, I didn't need a visa for Kazakhstan or Kyrgyzstan, but I did for Tajikistan and Uzbekistan. And they changed like the, the Tajik visa process like 30 days before I arrived. So half the people on the tour I was with just showed up at the airport and didn't have to do anything. Uh, and Uzbekistan has subsequently gotten rid of their visa policy. So, and, and tourism doubled and you're going to find amazing things up in the Xi'an uh, 10 mountains in, in Kyrgyzstan. I mean, that that's, you know, beats being up in the Rockies. You're in this really high uh, latitude or altitude. Uh, you have nomadic guys who are playing their version of like, uh, I would say it's like polo, but it's more like rugby. And it's with a, instead of a ball, it's with a dead sheep. Um, so you're going to be able to witness some of that Samarkand in Uzbekistan. I mean, it's just, it's just a fascinating place and it's becoming a lot easier to visit. And it's not a place that a lot of people would think of. And the word Stan, or it's not a word. I mean, it's like the suffix scares a lot of people because they think of Afghanistan or Pakistan and places with terrorism. These places are Muslim in the way that the Netherlands is Christian, Right. 
I, I didn't see a single mosque. I didn't see a single woman with her head covered. Uh, they were very much secularized when they were part of the Soviet Union, and they're still that way today. English is not widely spoken, but you can certainly find guides and everyone else, and it's pretty cheap uh, to visit there. And you'll find, again, great food and an experience that just not many people uh, have had. So I, that's, a, that's definitely a place I'd recommend. And there's going to be an opening, a very short opening. Tour companies, this has just hammered them. Even airlines are able to, to do a couple flights. Hotels have been able to book some rooms, but tour companies have been shut down completely. And there are some fantastic deals that are going to be opening up. If you ever wanted to go somewhere like Antarctica, where they are going to need to pack these ships, and this might be the best time to do it. Um, so the Antarctica season is in the winter in the Northern Hemisphere. So it usually is November to early March. And so this year has basically been canceled, uh, 2020. So 2021, when it starts, may have some fantastic deals. You still may have people that are going to be leery about traveling. Um, I don't know what the situation is going to be then. Uh, some places are taking bookings for 2022 right now. So you're going to be able to, you know, maybe if it's a year out, maybe a little safer, but still pretty cheap. And I would definitely do that if you can afford it. Um, because, and, and, and if you can also get on one of the ships that goes to the Falkland Islands and South Georgia Island, because they are actually more amazing than Antarctica in a lot of ways, but everyone wants to go to Antarctica because that's the sexy place, but they'll visit Antarctica on the way as well and, and try to do that if possible. Oh, very interesting. Good, good advice. People, the question I get most often now when I do interviews and I talk to people is, oh, where, where's your first trip going to be? And the truth is, I don't know, and I'm not planning it because I got burned by that thinking I could go to China last April and I'm, I'm just going to wait. And in the meantime, I'm just working on stuff here. I'm doing my podcast and uh, that time will come. I do not know when, and I do not know where. So. Gotcha. Um, when you travel around a lot, you, you can't carry many belongings. Is there something that you've, you collect or that you've decided to take from every place you've been as a I did that initially at first. Uh, the problem was it's a lot of stuff to carry around. Right. So what I usually will end up doing is uh, just keep some currency. You know, you'll, you'll occasionally have a couple, not less than a dollar sometimes of, of whatever the currency is for that country, some coins. And so I'll keep some of that. And so now I have these like bricks of money. I mean, they look like something like a, a, a Coke dealer would, you know, have stuffed under their, their bed, except it's all just tiny denominations from just every country under the sun. And I haven't even gone back to, to try to estimate the value of it because if anyone were to steal it, it would be so time consuming to get any money from it, having to go, because you go to most uh, for, uh, currency exchange places and they'll do, you know, euros, pounds, pesos, whatever major currencies are, but they're not going to be dealing with Laotian Kip or Solomon Island business dollars or things like that. And, and especially if it's 50 cents worth of it. Right. So, you know, by the time you factor in what they charge you, you you'd get, you know, nothing out of it. So oh, that'd be a pretty neat can to go through though. I'd love to see how all these different currencies look. <laughs> One thing I do have, uh, if you've ever been to the UK, uh, this is a little weird thing they have is that the Bank of England issues their own notes and the Bank of Scotland issues their own notes and the Bank of Northern Ireland issues their own notes. And a lot of places in England will not accept Scottish currency, even though it's the same country. 
Well, as it turns out, British territories also issue their own pounds. So uh, the Isle of Man, Jersey, Guernsey, Gibraltar, uh, St. Helena, and a bunch of other places all have their own pounds, and I've collected all of them. And so what I want to do someday is to go to London and try buying something with like a Scottish pound and have them reject it. And then just go through every single pound from every other British territory. And then eventually it's like, oh, oh, a Bank of England one. Okay. <laughs> I want to see that. You got to post it. You got to, you got to do a YouTube or a TikTok for that one. <laughs> well, any final words of wisdom for would-be uh, one of travelers once COVID ends? Uh, do it. Yeah. You know, I, I know a lot of people, they have regular jobs. They're not millionaires. Uh, and what they do is they, they work so they can travel and they prioritize it. They don't buy second homes or jet skis and stuff. They spend that money on travel and they use their vacation time for the purpose of traveling. And if travel is something you want to do, it can be done. This is the, the greatest time in the world. Uh, well, not this time this year, but in, in general uh, for traveling, you can pretty much go anywhere on the planet uh, in an affordable way. You can stay, uh, if you're creative about it, whether it's Airbnbs or couch surfing or things like that, affordably, uh, you can eat affordably. So it can be done. Uh, you just have, it's really more about having the will to do it. Well, I'm, I cannot wait. <laughs> I am so anxious to get back out there. But I want to thank you, Gary, for being a part of this podcast. There's so much I didn't even talk to you about. So I could have you on here again. We didn't talk about your photography. I know you've, you've photoed. You photographed over 400 UNESCO World Heritage Sites, um, and I know you. it's a big part of your living is the photography, correct? Yeah, I've been named Travel Photographer of the Year three times in North America, and when I started traveling, I didn't know anything about photography. I just bought an expensive camera that I thought would take good photos, and I learned very quickly that's not how it works, uh, and so I basically had to teach myself over several years until I, I got to where I am. Oh, wow. So you had no, you didn't even know you were going to get into photography. You just kind of happened into it. And... Yeah, but there's a whole story, but I'd be happy to do another show to talk about it. Okay. All right. Sounds good. Uh, so thank you, Gary. If you want to learn, uh, you want to see his podcast, listen to his podcast, you want to see his travel, uh, anything, everything-everywhere.com uh, is where you can get it all. So I'm going to go there before my next travels. because I am super easy to find online. Even if you type Gary and travel, you'll find me. Just Gary. You don't even need your last yep. name. <laughs> just Gary and travel. If you just type Gary, you'll get Gary Vaynerchuk, but you yeah. got to put the travel part in and then you'll find me. Okay. So it's Gary last name travel. Yeah. <laughs> uh, again, we are sponsored by Dweebs Global. So if you're looking for no nonsense advice, uh, resume help, free mental health assistance, or really any advice at all, there's no catch and it is completely free. So please check out, don't check out, please use dweebsglobal.org. It's free.